This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Father Greg Boyle. Father Greg is a Jesuit priest who is the founder of Homeboy Industries. He's the author of the bestsellers Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion, and Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. With Sounds True, Father Greg recently participated with Pema Chodron, in a sold-out event on the UCLA campus on cultivating courage. Proceeds from the event are benefiting Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. To learn more, check out homeboyindustries.org. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Father Greg and I spoke about his early work in Bolivia, where he was evangelized by the poor, and how he doesn't go to the margins to save, but to find rescue. We also talked about the culture of safety and tenderness that is foundational at Homeboy Industries, and how he teaches that community trumps gangs. We talked about how to deal with judgments we may feel towards gang members or others who commit crimes and how to seek, quote, a compassion that can stand in awe at what people have to carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it. And finally, we talked about what it means to Father Greg to be in the world as God is and to offer love that seeks no return. Here's my conversation with a very inspiring and open-hearted human, Father Greg Boyle. I want to begin by thanking Pema Chodron, whose business manager called me a little over a year ago and said, Pema Chodron, for those of you who are not familiar with her, she is a Tibetan Buddhist meditation teacher, very beloved by many, many people, including Sounds True. Pema Chodron has become familiar with the work of Father Greg Boyle, and she wants to do an event with him and have all the proceeds go to his organization, Homeboy Industries. Tammy, Sounds True, will you put this event on? And I think it was only a quarter of a heartbeat that it took me to say, hell yeah, of course, heaven yeah, we want to do this. And in that process, I had the opportunity to become familiar with you and Homeboy Industries. So I want to thank Pema for the introduction and now this opportunity to introduce the Sounds True audience to you, Father Greg, and also to your work at Homeboy. If people aren't familiar with you and Homeboy, this is going to be, I think, a big heart-opening treat. 
at least it has been for me. So right here at the beginning, can you introduce our listeners to Homeboy Industries? Well, Homeboy uh, has been around for 30 years and has evolved and backed its way into now becoming the largest gang intervention rehab reentry program on the planet. So about 15,000 folks a year walk through our doors. We're located in uh, downtown Chinatown, L.A., the, the gang capital of the world with 120,000 gang members and 1,100 gangs. So we've grown over the years, you know, we're in terms of uh, what we saw ourselves doing. Now we're committed pretty much to creating this community of tenderness of of healing so that gang members can, uh, who freely come to us, can redirect their lives and discover the truth of who they are and, and also get paid to be trained in a variety of social enterprises, restaurants and such, um, which is really secondary to the healing. So, mm-hmm. so we have a lot of services and um, tattoo removal therapy, case management, Lots of uh, every imaginable curricular offering, substance abuse uh, focus as well, in terms of uh, helping them with their addictions. So we're kind of a one-stop shop, but uh, our our secret sauce is really kind of this community of tenderness that uh, allows them to find a, a sanctuary, really, so that they can become the sanctuary they sought, and then they can go home to their kids and present that sanctuary to them and thus break a cycle. Mm -hmm. I want to talk much more about this idea of a community of tenderness. But before we get there, if someone listening were to come out and visit you at Homeboy Industries and uh, you know, you use this phrase that you're in the midst of the gang capital of the world. What would they see? What What would they see if I if I came out and I visited you? What would it be like? Well, you would visit our headquarters, which is where everybody kind of starts, and the centerpiece is this 18 month training program. So the trainees are in our headquarters. Several of our businesses, the bakery, the merchandise store, um, are. Our, uh, the Home Grow Cafe are located at our headquarters. And then we have Homeboy Recycling, which is off-site, and silk screening, and a variety of restaurants that are off-site, and um, farmer's markets and things like that. So, But you would mainly see um, our headquarters, and you'd get the, uh, the feel of kind of what the, what the place is about. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned this culture of tenderness, and at the same time, you're employing people. And I know even for myself here, it sounds true, running a for-profit company, it's hard to get people to perform well, get along with each other, cooperate, collaborate, and have a culture of tenderness without introducing all kinds of, you know, disciplinary measures, things like that. And here you are working with gang members, employing gang members. How do you do it, Father Greg? <laughs> I had a homie the other day said that the, uh, he says, you know, the homeboy way is the opposite of things. And, and it is, you know, because um, we, we try not to get tripped up so much of, by behavior because we already know that 
behavior is a language, you know, gang violence is a language. So you want to know well, what language is it speaking? What is it indicating? So we don't want to be tripped up by it because we know it's a hard process for folks to take the step in our direction. So they have to freely walk through our door. Uh, we don't exist for people who need help, only for those who want it. So it's like a rehab in that sense. And then we know that the work is hard, you know, because everyone comes in with a huge burden of uh, chronic toxic stress where they need to find some relief. Every single person who walks through our doors has comes with uh, having had unspeakable things done to them. So we're a trauma-informed community in that sense. And so um, uh, we we do constant drug testing because we don't want folks to numb their pain or to self-medicate. So our principle is if you don't transform your pain, you're just going to keep transmitting it. So our program is for folks who don't want to inflict this anymore and want the freedom that comes from healing. Um, so it is hard. I mean, cause we, we run businesses. Uh, so we're a $19 million annual operation and 9 million comes from revenue generated from our nine social enterprises and the rest we have to raise, which is uh, a heavy lift. Um, but yeah, so we, we kind of don't get tripped up by the stuff that a lot of people do because we know that it's all part of the process for people to discover their true selves. Mm-hmm. Now, you said something interesting, behavior is a language. And I want to understand that better. And when you see certain behavior, how do you decipher the language that it's communicating? Well, you know, even if you take a larger aerial view with gang violence itself, which is what our program seeks to address ultimately, um, it's it's the language of a lethal absence of hope. So you can, you know, you don't you don't want to embrace a bad diagnosis because it it sends you down a kind of a rabbit hole, and nobody's ever found a healthy treatment plan that was born of a bad diagnosis. So. You know, if you look at gang violence and you think bad people are doing bad things, that's an unsophisticated and bad diagnosis. But if it, if you know it's a, it's a story of people who cannot imagine a future for themselves, so they're stuck in a despair that's quite dark. Or if you know it's a story about uh, trauma and damage, then you know you have to transform that pain. Or if you know it's a story about mental health issues and real illness, well, then you know you need to, you know, deliver mental health services in a timely and culturally appropriate way. So so you don't want to get fixated on the symptom. You want to, you want to ask, you know, well, what's underneath all this and what is it pointing to? And so then you, you know, infuse hope to kids for whom hope is foreign and you help heal the damage and you address the mental health issues. So that's, that's kind of the larger view, you know, but when you're in the weeds, you know, when you got every gang member who works there is working side by side with multiple, multiple enemies, rivals, guys they used to shoot at. And now they have to make croissants side by side with them, you know, so it's a challenge, but 
uh, I think they, they get to a point where they, you can't demonize people you know, and so once they're in the vicinity of each other, something quite magical happens, and then kinship is born. Some connection is is finally, uh, you know, a reality. You know, Father Greg, you offered some pretty startling statistics when you were sharing about homeboy industries and the number of people who are involved in gangs in the surrounding area, and then the number of people that homeboy industry serves, some percentage, some small percentage of that. Has the number of people in your area in Los Angeles that are involved in gangs been growing over the past years that you've been involved, despite the efforts of homeboy? And how do you not lose hope in the face of that? Well, uh, you know, the, the numbers are, were reliant on the sheriff's department, who is the, the keeper of the numbers. So they say there are 1,100 gangs, and they say there are 120,000 gang members. So because they're the keeper of the numbers, you can't really use another number. So uh, do I think the number is right? I think it's probably overblown. Um, and um, so I think they have a, an odd way of uh, determining that number. But having said that, um, you know, we had a thousand gang-related homicides in 1992. Well, that number has been cut in half and then cut in half again since then. And, and so every chief of police since the beginning of our program, um, you know, attributes uh, in great measure, uh, the singular impact that Homeboy has had on that number. Because prior to that, there was no exit ramp. There was no way for a gang member to get off this crazy freeway, this violent, deadly freeway. And and then Homeboy, even if gang members didn't walk through our doors, it it sort of uh, galvanized their imaginations. They said, wow, you mean there is a way to to step away? And, and that really wasn't true, uh, you know, 30 years ago. And what that did, not having an exit ramp, just compounded the despair of gang members. And it consequently increased the violence. So, so surely we've seen a, crease, a decrease in, in the violence since the beginning. But I, I don't really do disappointment. I don't do discouragement. I don't do success or failure. None of that stuff really matters to me. You know, you want to be anchored in love and in the present moment. And, uh, and you want to be faithful to an approach that has integrity and, and is the good and right and true thing to do. So results, outcomes um, are kind of not my concern. So consequently, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, troubled by, by setbacks or disappointment or somebody not measuring up. In the end, you know, a lot of times we, we, we kind of focus on things that work, but not everything that works helps. Okay, explain, explain that, what you mean by that. I, I didn't follow that. Yeah, because I think at some point people will kind of say, well, here are the outcomes. Here's our program. Um, on Wednesday night, we had fewer bullets flying in our city than we did on Monday night. 
so our program works. And and so my answer to that is not everything that works helps because sometimes you're you're just dealing with you know the symptoms you know the the, the nagging cough of the hung, lung cancer patient. Well, that would work. You could probably alleviate that cough, but I'm not sure it would help in terms of curing the cancer. Mm-hmm. So, so not everything that works helps, but everything that helps works. And, and Homeboy Industries helps, genuinely, concretely helps. So all that stuff uh, in the end is effective. Now, Father Greg, to be honest with you, there's so much I want to talk to you about, and I'm trying to prioritize what really matters most to me in my heart. But I notice, as you said, I don't do disappointment. I don't do success. I thought, that is very profound, and it's obviously not something you can just paint on top of your experience. There must be some way that you're so deeply rooted inside that you don't feel disappointment. I mean, one of the things I read in preparing for this conversation is that you have been present at more than 200 deaths of homeboy friends of yours that have worked at Homeboy, people that you've known, and in some instances, even the shooters that were involved in the deaths were people that you also knew who were also members of Homeboy. And then I hear you say something like, I don't do disappointment. And I think, how does Father Greg live that way? Well, I, I, I think I'm in a different position just because I've been exposed to so much death and, and have presided at so many funerals. But at, you get to a point, you know, where you, um, death cannot be the worst thing that can happen to you. If it is, then you'll be toppled by life itself. So you, you're always compiling the two essential lists, you know, the, the, the fates that are worse than death, and there are lots of them. And then there are the um, things that are more powerful than death, and there are lots of those. So unless you kind of know those lists, this is what I always tell the homies, especially after we've experienced the death of somebody close to us. Um, but, uh, you know, um, death couldn't possibly be the worst thing that could happen to you, given the fact that it will happen to everybody. And so you really, that's part of the task of life is to prepare yourself for that eventuality. And, uh, so I think that's important. And so you just, uh, you know, find your true self in loving and, um, and, and that's all you do. And, and, uh, and loving and work and service can't be about results because then you'll be toppled when you get bad ones. And, um, and it's about loving that doesn't seek for return. Otherwise you're, you, you don't live in the, uh, in the abundance of it. You, you're, you're always, uh, waiting for somehow there to be a return on, on your investment in love. So I, these are all tricks, you know, in a sense, you know, and, um, and staying absolutely anchored in, in what I would call the living room, because it, which is the present moment. If that's where the joy is, that's where tenderness happens. Otherwise you're, you're fretting 
anxiously about the future, which is like the kitchen, or you're lamenting what happened yesterday, which is like the bathroom. But but the living room is kind of where you live. That's where that's where life happens. You're only saved in the present moment, and and that's where you need to stay anchored. So, I mean, there's nothing hugely profound in that, but it's it's a way to stay, um, you know, freed from results and outcomes. And and Mother Teresa says we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful, and and I agree with that. In reading your book, Tattoos on the Heart, in the very, very beginning of the book, in describing your own background and coming to the work of Homeboy, you talk about how you went to Bolivia as a Jesuit priest, as a, as a young man, and that you were, quote-unquote, evangelized by the poor, And I wanted to understand that more. What happened to you in Bolivia? You write that, I knew that the poor had some privileged delivery system for giving me access to the gospel. Well, I I think I can see now, you know, and this is sort of scriptural religious language, but but the original covenant in the Old Testament between God and God's people— is says, as I have loved you, so must you have a special preferential care and love for the widow, orphan, and the stranger. So that's a big theme uh, in the scriptures. And, and God sort of identifies the widow, orphan, and stranger because God thinks these are the folks who know what it's like to have been cut off. And because they suffered in this particular way, God thinks, they are trustworthy guides to lead the rest of us uh, to the kinship of God, to the connection with each other, that all may be one, which is God's dream come true. So I had a palpable experience of that in Bolivia, where I found myself being led that these were, in fact, trustworthy guides. Because they had suffered so deeply, I I I was allowed myself to be reached by them. And, and then you discover that you don't go to the margins to save or rescue or even to make a difference. You go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make you different. And then suddenly everything is, everything is turned on its head. It's not about saving the day or uh, Jesus complex or you know, uh, the great white hope or any of those things. You don't go to the margins to rescue anybody, but go figure if we all go there, we all find rescue. So that, that first experience happened in a, in a profound way to me in Bolivia, which was at the time the poorest country in the hemisphere. Can you share with me a story of what happened that, actually made you feel different? Oh, gosh, you know, I I worked with so many different communities. You know, I worked with Quechua Indians up on this hilltop uh, in a place called uh, Terani. And then I I worked with youth in in this kind of parish. We sort of became a parish uh, in a place called Temporal. And then I worked with the... uh, uh, all these kids in an orphanage who uh, um, 
who were part of this newspaper selling syndicate. And it was, uh, it was like something out of Oliver Twist or Dickens. It was quite extraordinary. So it's literally the widow orphan and the stranger kind of leading me to, uh, to a sense of tenderness and, and how profound, uh, uh, how profoundly the poor have access to, to the joy that's uh, being held out to all of us. So just, you know, um, sharing their lot and, and I've had many experiences like that over my lifetime and, working in a prison island in Mexico, living with the prisoners for, you know, six months. And, and then certainly my 30 years of, uh, you know, working in on the East side. Um, so you watch then you, you're led always to this place of an ability to, and a grace and a gift to stand in awe at what these folks have to carry rather than, stand in judgment at how they carry it. So it's it sort of time and time again, I was had the scales fall from my eyes where I could see what they endured. And, uh, and it always led me back to the, to the good news, if you will, to the gospel and then to the joy of it. Cause it's in the end, it's about joy. Now this quote that you just said, very powerful standing in awe at what people have to carry rather than in judgment about how they carry it. I want to talk about those times when people, when I, I do feel judgmental. Maybe I feel judgmental about someone who's committed a certain kind of crime or someone who's staying addicted or something like that. Can you help me and others move to what you're describing, this place of awe at what people have to carry rather than the judgments that I hear in my head? Yeah, I mean, that's always the dynamic tension, you know, between awe and judgment. And, uh, and judgment keeps us from being the truth of who we are, and awe ushers in the very truth of who we are. And, and so, you know, um, as the Dalai Lama would say, you know, everybody has Buddha nature and there are no exceptions to that, which is also to say there is no us and them. There's just us. And how do you obliterate once and for all the illusion that we are separate, but we're forever um, demonizing and otherizing and, and, uh, it's it's like um, in the Santa Fe, Texas shooting, most recent uh, mass shooting. Uh, you know, a 17 year old kid did it, and and Senator Ted Cruz uh, says today, the face of evil was revealed to the people of Texas, and then they cut. I saw this on television. Then they cut to a 16 year old classmate who was there who survived. And she says, you know, anyone who does this has a world of hurt inside. Well, you, you carry those two things in your hands, you know, and you, and you weigh them and you, and you say, well, the 16 year old girl is onto something, you know, she also knows that the answer to every question is compassion, but she's onto a very sophisticated 
compassionate view, I would say she's seeing the situation as nearly as God does, uh, who can get underneath it and not be tempted to demonize or to call something evil when clearly what you're talking about is a hugely broken, damaged, mentally ill person who did this clearly. And then the reason why that's so unacceptable in our society is because you can only feel one thing towards somebody who's damaged and broken and mentally ill, and that is compassion. But that's unacceptable because we want to be able to hate this person. We want to be able to say this person doesn't belong to us. We want to be able to say this person is other and outside. And yet we're all being invited at every moment to imagine a circle of compassion and then imagine that no one's standing outside that circle. So, so that's kind of how we want to be faithful, faithful to that. And, but every moment and every day, it's a choice to judge or to stand in awe, mm-hmm. which is the more, obviously the more compassionate, uh, loving, kind and tender stance. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Just to break this down even more, I wonder if you have any wisdom for someone when they notice that they're going to judgment right in that moment, whether it's because they're watching the news or they're hearing about someone's political opinions that are wildly different or whatever it might be. Is there an inner move that can be made in those moments? Yeah, I I think these are, it's in the category of constant choosing. So there's no once and for all here. In every moment, you're choosing to close your heart or to open it. And um, so that's part of being awake and being aware that you somehow want to truly know and be aware of what afflicts you. Otherwise, you, you will be ruled by your affliction. So, so you have to kind of notice this uh, because it's constant. The judgment is constant. And, but the more you can open your heart to tenderness, because tenderness is, at Homeboy, we always say, you know, love is the answer. Community is the context. But tenderness is the methodology, you know. Otherwise, love stays in the air or in your head or even in your heart. But unless it becomes tender, it, there's no connective tissue. So, but tenderness is, is, is this decision. It's the choosing in every moment. I, I, I'm about to enter this room, and I'm going to be tender. And it's the thing that keeps 
um, judgment at bay. It's the, it's the choice that keeps your heart opened uh, to what people are really going through, to the brokenness and the damage, rather than, uh, you know, kind of dismissing them. I, I can remember once there, were, there was a homie, we were in a council meeting, which is all homies and a group of like 10, and we're discussing the trainees. So that's kind of what they do every morning for an hour. And you talk about trainees who are kind of coloring outside the lines or who are maybe being attitudinal. And we're discussing this one kid and uh, I say kids, but you know, they're all, uh, you know, 18, 20, 25. And uh, one guy said, you know, again, a former gang member, a guy who was in prison for 25 years. He said, you know, you know what this guy's problem is? He thinks his shit don't stink. And then another homie in the room said, no, he, all he smells is stink. So it was the same kid with two diagnoses. One was open hearted and one was not, but, but the, the difference came in, in the guy who could be open to this kid. He was, he had made friends with his own wound. And if you don't make friends with your own wound, then you will be tempted to despise the wounded. And that's exactly what happened in that case. There was this guy kind of found this kid despicable um, and like he was pulling a fast one and the rest of you are naive, but I really see this. But the truth was he didn't because he was such a stranger to himself. So anyway, that's a long way of answering this, but I, I, but I think that's the key thing. You, everybody needs to be maintain this friendship with their own wound because, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a poem where he says, uh, keep your loneliness warm. Well, it's a poem about uh, anger, but, but it's also, you know, keeping your loneliness warm is, is keep your wound close at hand because you're going to need it to be compassionate in the world. And uh, because if you become a stranger to your own brokenness, you're likely to be judgmental of, of the damage that people are expressing or experiencing. So, Father Greg, you talked about how Homeboy is a trauma-informed community. And when you're talking now about making friends with our own wound, how do you help the homeboys in this process of making friends with these very, very, very difficult wounds, terrible wounds of early childhood abuse and neglect? Well, you, you can't really address it at, at some intellectual place. You know, you can't enter the head with it. That's why it's so important to create a safe community of tenderness where people feel welcome. And, and then, then they'll do the work. They'll, that's the only context. Uh, it's a similar kind of population, like with homeless and with gang members, because they're so laden with chronic toxic stress that's so burdensome unless they can find rest and relief from that, they won't ever be able to even identify uh, 
or excavate their own wounds. So, so the key piece in all this, it seems to me, is the place, is the vicinity, is the community of tenderness. Once you have that, then they'll be able to, to look at this stuff. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it, it, it requires great courage and bravery on their part. But it can only happen, in, I think, in that place where they feel safe enough to explore and discover what happened to them and how it, how it altered everything. Mm-hmm. And then, then they leave us after 18 months. And, and though you and I both know that healing ends in the graveyard, what we suggest by our 18-month time period is that if you surrender to this, then this will be foundational. It will be essential. And, and then you'll be able to have, you will have identif- re-identified who you are. And you you will have gained some essential resilience. And now you're going to leave us after 18 months. And we hope to locate you a job to make the transition seamless. But now you leave us and of course, the world's going to throw at you what it will. But this time you won't be toppled by it. And, and that's kind of the essential thing. So, so at Homeboy, we, we make this guarantee you know, we'll say an employed gang member may or may not reoffend, and an educated one may or may not reoffend. But we make this absolute guarantee: an essentially healed gang member won't ever go back to prison ever. And that's borne out in my experience. Once they've kind of given themselves over to this healing experience, then it just is inconceivable that they would ever, you know, return to prison and reoffend. One of the things you wrote about in Tattoos of the Heart is how, for homeboys, the father wound is every homeboy's homework. That's a quote. And you write, in the soul of nearly every homie I know is a hole that's the shape of his dad. And here you are, I'm calling you Father Greg, and the homeboys call you Father G, I imagine that the healing of this wound would involve you, at least as a figure for homies. Here's Father G. Can he help me heal the father wound? How do you work with that? Well, hardly any homie calls me Father G now. I mean, all the homies who work there call me Pops, and I don't even know where that came from. But it's it's a constant now pops pops and so so there is a, a sense to that that you assume this role i suppose you know and and um either they had no father or the or the the presence of the father was quite problematic so you know i suppose that's what's happening and and uh and they get a sense of that and you want to and part of that's all part of the the attachment repair, you know, because every gang member comes into our doors with a disorganized attachment. You know, a mom was either frightened or frightening, and you can't really um, 
calm yourself down if you've never been soothed. So I think, I think they experience stuff as quite soothing at Homeboy. And, and certainly in as much as I sort of, I'm a stand-in for the father they never knew, then you want it to be affectionate and soothing. You want it to be consoling and, and you want it to be unconditional because um, you want it to represent a no matter whatness, no matter what you do, I'm always going to be here. And, and you can turn your back on me and homeboy industries, but I'll never turn my back on you. And you want that to be just in cement. And, and that has a, a power for, uh, for folks who only know abandonment and rejection from their, from their parents. Mm -hmm. As you're talking, what's occurring to me is I'm wondering, have you ever been challenged to have this kind of no matter what attitude or to bring tenderness to a situation? And how did you deal with that? Meaning I could just imagine situations, I don't know, where someone took advantage of homeboy's generosity and goodness and that, you know, you would feel a sense of anger, not tenderness, not no matter what, I'm here for you. Uh, yeah, but you don't you don't want to be tempted by that either, you know. And, and all those things have happened, you know. I've had guns pulled out on me, and I've had wow. Um, I've had folks say they're going to kill me. You, none of them mentally well, but still, they put guns in, and you you kind of talk them off the cliff, and you walk them out the door. But you, it's not stuff that you take personally, uh, because it's never about you, and 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 so it's a good dictum to say don't take anything personally and and I don't and and nobody can take my advantage if I'm giving my advantage and and whatever loving I'm able to eke out in my life does not look for a return so it wants to stay free. It doesn't want to put people in debt. And I just think these are common, um, simple things, you know, by which to guide your own life, you know. Um, and a lot of it for me, well, most of it mainly is trying to reflect the kind of God you believe in. And um, so... People settle for a puny, partial God. They settle for, um, you know, the one false move God. But you, I, you know, you want to be the anchored in the no matter whatness of God. And and if you know that God is compassionate, loving kindness, well, then it's the only thing you want to do. I, you know, I, I recently I uh, just buried my mom, and she was ninety-two years old, and a sweetheart and never afraid of death. You know, she was, you know, once she said to me, uh, I've never done this before. Like it was skydiving, you know, and, and she was just kind of exhilarated by it. But every time I have eight brothers and sisters and whenever one or two or eight of us were standing around her bed 
and she'd come back into consciousness, she'd see one of us and she'd say with breathless delight, you're here, you're here. And after I buried her, I thought, well, that's, that's the only thing God has on God's mind, which is to kind of say with breathless delight, you're here, you're here. And so you receive the tender glance of God, and then you choose to be the tender glance of God in the world. And that's the only thing that makes any damn sense to me at the moment. So, because that's where the joy is. And there are people who lead you to that, and the widow and the orphan and the stranger, they lead you to how to more and more be receptive to the tender glance and to be generous with that glance with others. So um, anyway, that's, that's what I've, I've come to see more surely uh, lately. It's very beautiful, Father Greg, listening to you share that. And what I'm reminded of is a a recent conversation I had with a Sounds True author, Carolyn Mace, where she talked about how many of us in the world at our time are in a faith crisis. We don't have this solid conviction and investment in the Abrahamic religions, for many of us, the way we used to. And we're not Mm -hmm. in in a new world where we have a sense of faith and in something like organic divinity. We're in between and we're confused. And so when you say something like our task is to imitate the kind of God we believe in, what occurs to me is how for many people that's confusing. What kind of God do I believe in? I don't know. I don't know. I don't believe in this old sort of superstitious God. I like the kind of love and tenderness that Father Greg's talking about, but I don't know how to be in the world the way God is. But it's, it's, um, you know, and again, uh, all the homies who are in recovery, you know, will talk about the higher power. So, but faithfulness, we, we get tripped up. We think it's about adherence to a belief or to a set of beliefs or a belief system when it's really about your fundamental goodness, your Buddha nature. It's really about um, a belief in the world that people are essentially wonderfully good and that, you know, if, if people are engaged in things that are are difficult to handle you know it's 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 not because they're evil you know they're essentially good but something's keeping them from seeing their essential goodness that's why i love when an english reporter is interviewing the dalai lama and is asking him about self-hatred and he doesn't know what the guy's talking about so he stops speaking in English and turns to his translator to kind of say, what is this guy talking about? And then the guy translates and still the Dalai Lama doesn't get it. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, with great frustration, he says, everybody has the Buddha nature. Everybody has goodness. Everybody. 
and and if they're not able to access it, it's usually there are things that have concretely gotten in the way, like trauma or real live mental illness. And uh, and I even it, frankly in our current political climate and our heightened you know polarizing tribalism, which is alarming. But but even Donald Trump belongs to us. That's a hard one for people. It's a hard one for me. But um, but it's we belong to each other, and 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 the problem in the world is that we've forgotten. And so kinship is the goal. How do you create this community of kinship such that God, in fact, might recognize it? So you try to be in the world who God is, and you don't settle for the partial prehistoric third grade God that we were all saddled with. And, and, and you end up finding the God who doesn't want anything from you who only wants for you and who somehow, and I don't know how, just behold the one beholding you and smiling and and saying with breathless delight, you're here, you're here. And, and once you feel that, once you experience that, then you only want to be that in the world. And, And that's what it looks like when it's from the inside out rather than imposed from the outside in, like the Ten Commandments are all all the things that we were all as kids forced to memorize, you know, but that's baby food. But the solid food is, is having this palpable experience of a God who, who only wants for you, that my joy may be yours and your joy complete. That's it. So it's not about grim duty. It's not about the sacrifice and exhausting, um, you know, somehow giving and not counting the cost. It's about joy. And and this is the thing that, you know, you, you, we want to help each other get to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of your own faithfulness, your own confidence in this God who loves you in the way that you're attuning us to in this conversation. How did that happen for you, Father Greg? Well, again, I think that it's in many ways, um, you know, everybody either wins the lottery or they don't in terms of their own growing up. And, you know, so I, I was absolutely devoid of trauma as a kid, you know, um, and it doesn't mean you don't have issues, but um, damage really wasn't done to me. That wasn't one of my things, which is just doesn't make me morally superior. It just means I I won some parent lottery and sibling lo- lottery. And um, but I think, especially for half of my life, I I've been privileged to walk with the poor and they've altered my heart and reshaped my thinking. And, and so they have been, my experience is that they've been trustworthy guides. And, and so endless things daily, if you're attentive to it, um, or as a homie said to me the other day, he goes, God keeps dropping me hints. And, and I like that because I think that's the truth that if you're attentive 
God keeps dropping you hints every day, things that rhyme with God, because it's always an approximation. You know, St. Ignatius of Loyola, who founded the Jesuits, always said the, uh, talks about the God who's always greater. So just when you think you've landed on some conception of who God is, uh, then you then you find that God is even greater than that. And, and we want to move beyond the God that we endlessly create in our own image. My, my friend Anne Lamott always says, uh, you know you've created God in your own image when God hates the same people you do. <laughs> and and that's, that's a problem. Because you get to that place where you go, that's exactly what you're doing. You know, the, the God I believe in never would have voted, voted for Trump. You know, and so you, you get to this narrow place where, but you want to get to the more spacious, the more expansive view of who God actually is. Because there is the God we actually have, and there is the God we've settled for the more realistic God, the narrow, petty, tiny, puny God. And it's, it's a lifetime challenge to uh, somehow get yourself away from that tiny God. Now, Father Greg, if there's someone who's listening to this, and let's say they're extremely inspired, and let's just say they happen to be a billionaire, and <laughs> they write you a check for a whole ton of money, Hundreds of millions of dollars, let's just say. Wow. How would you spend that money? Well, again, you know, we're, we're it's, it's um, hand to fist around this place, you know, and, and it's really hard to every year we have to raise $10 million. That is a heavy lift. And so um, it'd be nice to not have to worry about it. It's the only thing that kind of keeps me awake is trying to fund this place. And, I, you know, I never set out to set up this place. It, we just backed our way. We just evolved our way into it. And, and part of the thing with it is, is it's a place where gang members come. They're comfortable at our place. It's funny, I go to a lot of cities and and the main question that if somebody runs a comparable program to Homeboy Industries, they always ask me this question, how do you get gang members to go there? Well, in 30 years, that's never been our issue. They, they come. Our problem is not being able to, to uh, you know, to bring them all in immediately uh, because, you know, we're constrained by money. So if any of your listeners want to, to remedy the one thing that keeps me awake at night, I'd be eternally grateful to them. <laughs> That's a, I get that, that, that it would relieve this hand to fist constraint, but how would you expand your program? If you were just given a moment here, a visionary moment. Well, it, we, you know, we also have, we've started this thing called the global homeboy network. So when people wanted us to, airlift homeboy to Wichita and, and franchise and become the McDonald's of gang intervention programs. We decided not to do that. So, so we give technical assistance. We help people start their own programs in their own locale. So we gather every August 300 to 400 people from all over the world. So we have 146 programs 
in the United States in 16 programs outside of the country. So if, if people wanted to fund this effort, it's more of a movement. It, it, it insists that gang members are human beings and that we belong to each other. And if, if you can create enough communities of tenderness that, that are engaged in healing, that it really um, solves a lot of the social dilemmas that plague us. So uh, it's a good investment. One thing I felt in familiarizing myself with your work and how much you've learned from being with the poor and with gang members and you know how you spend your time in the work of Homeboy was I noticed that I felt painfully aware of my own privilege as a person and also a sense of separation. And I thought, here's Father Greg. He's teaching so much about kinship, connection, being in association with people that might be seen as other. And I noticed I felt privileged and separate in a way that was painful. And it's one thing, yes, to write a check. And I think that's a powerful, important act for people who have resources to do that act. But how can we restore a sense of kinship with others if we feel in that privileged and separated place? What would you recommend? Well, I think that's part of the problem, and that's a good question. I mean, because uh, I think part of the problem is we disqualify ourselves. And so uh, any city I go to and, and I kind of sit down with stakeholders, mayor and chief of police or whoever, community activists, and if their response is rarefied and narrow and specialized and has even a taint of, uh, you know, step aside, let us handle this then I know that it's a response that's quite unhealthy. But the more the response is all hands on deck, if you are the proud owner of a pulse, if, if you know, you can listen, if you can allow yourself to be reached by gang members, then, then you can be a beneficial presence. So, but the problem comes, we think that only a former gang member can, can somehow be beneficially present to a current gang member, and it's nonsense. It's a human thing. And a lot of times we think, you know, it's about telling or talking or, you know, you know, a gang member saying, you know, Father Greg, I think this gang member is going to listen to me more than he's going to listen to you. And, and that may well be true if the task is talking to them. But since the task is receiving them who can't receive them it's a human thing and so at at homeboy we have 300 volunteers you know and they're all privileged people but they come there and and they're not there to convey a message they're there to allow themselves to be reached by these gang members they're not there to make a difference in their lives they're there to to be made different and what you get as a result is this exquisite mutuality where everyone is inhabiting their own dignity and truth. Everyone is. It, the feeling's mutual. And, and that's what you want. But, but those are the signs of unhealth. 
when it's when it's a kind of a specialized shock troop that goes in to help and the rest of us say who are privileged um absent themselves from entering into this community so i think that's how you that's how you combat it is by standing against uh the notion that you could ever be disqualified from a human venture I am the proud owner of a pulse. There you go. (laughs) Father Greg, one thing, uh, we're just getting to know each other. This is our very first conversation, but uh, one sounds true author who's also a father, Father Richard Rohr. I asked him at one point if he would end our conversation with a blessing. And I told him that I could never get enough blessings. And that at a certain point, I started thinking I was a blessing whore. And he started calling me the blessing (laughs) whore every time he saw me. Uh, So it's true. I think that uh, maybe it's because of this uh, time in our culture outside of traditional religious structures where blessings, uh, I value them so much. And I, and I have a sense that many of our listeners do too. And I was reading that at Homeboy, sometimes people will ask you to give them a blessing. And I wonder if we could end our conversation on that note with you offering our listeners a blessing. Okay. Um, well, may God bless you all and fill you with a sense that you are exactly what God had in mind when God made you. May you imagine a circle of compassion and go to the margins and stand in the right place with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop and with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. And may you always continue to be a remarkable sign of the God who loves us without measure and without regret. Amen. Amen. Father Greg, talking to you has been a supreme great delight. Thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, check out homeboyindustries.org. We all have a pulse. Thank you so much, Father (laughs) Greg. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world. Thanks for listening.